It should be noted, for sake of transparency, that the following episode was recorded in late October 2016. Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 131. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Gabe Bryson Trezeis. Good to be with you again. And it's a pleasure to have you back. So today, we're going to be talking about objectivity in journalism, which is a topic that you requested specifically. And to begin, I'd really love to know why you feel the topic is meaningful, and also to what extent you have experience with objectivity as it relates to journalism. Well, I brought this topic to your attention because I think it's a really important one. Journalism influences the way we think about current events, the way we think about public life generally, and I think a lot of us take for granted that the news we consume is objective, that is, fair and accurate. However, I think most of us also appreciate that some news organizations are biased in some way or exhibit a certain political slant. Take Fox News, for example. Clearly, Fox News is a more right-wing media organization. MSNBC, we might consider more left-wing. At the same time, though, organizations generally considered objective or impartial, such as the Washington Post or New York Times, I think are in some ways, partial. Not in ways that we may recognize in their news coverage, but in their opinion pages. They may be more slanted, or they may favor one political ideology over others. And that's something I hope to explore with you uh, later on in the episode. From a personal standpoint, I've been privileged to do journalism, serving as a reporter and an editor of my college newspaper, and now getting a chance to conduct journalism professionally. And I had this interesting episode a little while ago where my editor proposed that I go cover a Clinton campaign rally in Hanover, which is in New Hampshire, one of the key swing states in the 2016 election. Now, this request was contingent on my being publicly neutral on the election. He asked me, had I donated to a campaign? Had I expressed a preference for a candidate? on social media. And indeed I had. This disqualified me from being able to cover the rally. Now, I didn't announce to anybody for whom I was going to vote. I critiqued both major party nominees. But because I had staked out a position on the candidates, that in his eyes made it so that if I were to cover the rally, people could reasonably claim that I had a conflict of interest or that I wasn't impartial. And I think that's a common notion today, that journalists must remain thoroughly objective, that they cannot speak out in favor of or against particular political positions, else their objectivity may be compromised. So that's what inspired me to bring this discussion topic to you today, and I'd be curious to hear what you think on the matter. Well, Gabe, I'm particularly interested in the point your editor made about disqualification. And one of the articles that you and I read from the Center for Public Integrity talked about this past election in terms of the ethics of journalists who donate or give to political campaigns or candidates 
And as soon as I started reading the article, I began to consider the fact, at least as I see it, that money is not the only resource you can lend to a candidate. There are plenty of campaign supporters who donate their time, essentially, in order to canvas for a candidate or take calls in order to inform the electorate and try to encourage people to go out and vote on election day. And those aren't necessarily financial contributions. And I would even say, as journalists are part of the press, that it's been noted that Donald Trump in particular in this past election gained around, by some estimates, according to the New York Times, $2 billion worth in free advertising because of the ways in which he was able to capitalize on the media, which is, of course, not to say that Clinton was not similarly capable of harnessing the power of the media. But my point being that money isn't the only indication of support for a candidate. And so I would challenge listeners and perhaps your editor to consider the ways in which one shows support or perhaps the ways in which attention towards a candidate is not necessarily the same as an endorsement. As you've told me in the past, you've been critical of candidates and that may necessitate posts on social media in which you are talking about those candidates. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you support one or the other. And as I learned in that article from the Center for Public Integrity, some news organizations such as the New York Times and the Associated Press explicitly forbid individuals from giving to political campaigns and candidates. It's in their ethical foundation. And while I respect the objectivity that I think journalism seeks to promote, I don't think we can deny the fact that journalists, at least for the time being, are humans and therefore have inherent biases and I do think it's wise and noble to be able to separate one's place of work, one's employment, and source of income from their interests, passions, etc. But in the political sphere, I don't think it's always that easy because a political candidate can very easily shape the economy of a nation and one's livelihood as a result. So I can understand why people, perhaps dangerously so, do ultimately weave their careers as journalists into the political and very sensitive fabric of the current events in the world and in the nation. And I would say that we often look at bias, especially in journalism, as a binary, whether one is politically left-leaning or right-leaning. And while I don't believe that anyone can fully rid themselves of bias, most people in the world still possess emotional impulses. And I think that emotions, at least in my perception, are not always a bias so much as a predisposition to the possibility of bias. That if you are an emotional being and someone gives you information, your reaction will likely incorporate your emotions and therefore you will not have an objective perspective of that information you've been given. And so I've often felt, relating objectivity to journalism, that I don't necessarily, for as much as I may admire a single journalist, have faith that one person could maintain objective journalism without outside input. And so in my perception of what objective journalism or the pursuit might look like, there are multiple voices intersecting with one another and in a sense correcting for difference of opinion or bias so that the end product may not necessarily be 100% objective, but is more objective than the work of a single journalist would have otherwise been. And I'd love to know what you think about any of that. Well, I appreciate those comments, Kip. Your point that support for political candidates can take many forms is well taken. I think monetary donations are one of the most obvious, but certainly reporters can lend their time to political campaigns, 
and perhaps more valuably, their column inches. Reporters are in the distinct position of being able to cover campaign rallies, cover proposals put forth by candidates, and portray them in positive light, a negative light. But in any case, however they discuss these policies is bound to influence public opinion. And I want to underscore that point, because while we may think that candidates are in charge of their own destinies, really the media play a huge role in determining the outcomes of elections. You mentioned that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both received massive amounts of free airtime before the election, Trump so much so that he hardly had to run any TV advertisements, because all the major networks were covering his every campaign rally. I think one of the shortcomings of the media's coverage of this past presidential campaign was the fact that, for so much of it, they simply reported what Donald Trump said without critically analyzing it. They repeated what he said without verifying its accuracy. And as many folks came to realize as the campaign wore on, Donald Trump made a lot of untrue claims. And toward the end of the campaign, some news outlets, I think of CNN now in particular, They would report what Trump said, but then fact check him, sometimes in the body of their headlines. They would list a claim he'd made at one of his rallies, and then in a parenthetical, after the claim, say, this is not true, which is a pretty blunt way of fact checking, but effective. That was an important counterweight to all of the free advertising that these networks gave Trump throughout the campaign. Another thought about the role of journalists as political actors, as political advocates. We talked about the Center for Public Integrity report showing that hundreds and hundreds, I think their figure was 400-something, journalists contributed to the campaign of Hillary Clinton in this past election. And I think that raises some legitimate concerns about the objectivity of those journalists. Is it right for these reporters to be donating to the Clinton campaign at the same time as they're reporting on it. I would say that constitutes a conflict of interest, but at the same time, I think it's silly to require that a food critic, for example, abstain from political advocacy. What does filet mignon have to do with Hillary Clinton's healthcare plan? I think those issues are sufficiently disconnected that it really doesn't bother me for a food critic, an arts critic, for example, to donate to a political campaign. I think while well-intentioned, the policies of the Associated Press, the New York Times, that their staff may not contribute to political campaigns are a little too broad. What harm does it do for somebody not directly involved in reporting on the campaign to volunteer for one of the candidates? Another point along those lines, I think there is a great deal of variety in how news organizations treat this issue. The article mentioned that MSNBC suspended Keith Olbermann a few years back for having donated to the political campaigns of a handful of Democratic candidates. At the same time, though, George Stephanopoulos, who is an anchor for ABC, has contributed tens of thousands of dollars to the Clinton Foundation. Now, the foundation is not an arm of the campaign, but certainly it's associated with Bill and Hillary Clinton. Is that fundamentally different enough from what Olbermann did to acquit Stepanopoulos of any wrongdoing? That's an interesting question, one I would be curious to hear your thoughts on. Relatedly, I think the article that I sent you from the Columbia Journalism Review about objectivity in journalism made a really important point, and I quote, 
objectivity makes reporters hesitant to inject issues into the news that aren't already out there. To me, what this says is that if reporters stumble upon a story that's not already in the news, they may feel limited in their ability to report it, lest they appear biased. I think there's this sense in the journalism world that you're only supposed to report the news that's already in the papers, that's already on the TV. Yet, this notion kind of butts heads with the traditional journalistic value of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Journalism, you know, ever since the French Revolution and the Fourth Estate, has functioned as an independent arm of society, designed as a check on government. Now, one of the things we witness a lot nowadays is journalists working rather closely with government officials. And I think that can be beneficial when journalists are able to cultivate sources within government and use them to uncover news that otherwise would have gone unreported. But at the same time, I think it's important that journalists remember their purpose is not to serve as a public relations arm of government officials or political candidates. Their purpose, or at least traditionally, their role has been to challenge power and to uplift the downtrodden in society. And I worry a little bit that this hyper-focus on objectivity will discourage journalists from representing those downtrodden, marginalized members of society, because if they do, folks might accuse them of advocacy. And that's one thing most journalists don't want to be called, is advocates, because it makes them appear subjective when really most journalists want to appear objective, because they know that if they're considered objective, they'll be considered reliable and responsible. And of course, in the world where journalism is a career and something that puts food on the table for some people, that reliability is what leads journalists to be considered for future stories and to therefore earn more money to remain in the business of journalism. And so I think that's a valid concern that you bring up and one that perhaps ties back to what your editor told you. And if perhaps you needed the money to go to that Clinton rally a few months ago, you may have had to be a different person in preparation for it that would have allowed you to attend and therefore would have permitted you to invest that time and therefore earn that money. And I think that is a very tricky element in journalism, that it is a market and a market which I feel often forces an almost obsession with the zeitgeist, as the article from the Columbia Journalism Review gets at in that quotation you mentioned, which is that journalists are not expected to inject new issues or to add to the conversation in a sense, but rather to keep the current conversation cycling. So of course, more eyeballs will find those articles, and so that advertisers will pay for journalistic content, But that was one of my greatest frustrations in this prior election, that I feel as though we as the readers, the consumers of journalism, were constantly met with the same stories or various versions of the same story. And I do understand that there should be multiple perspectives, and I also understand that new information often comes out, but I do see an imbalance in journalism and reporting that keeps information in the news loop for far too long to the point that perspectives become distorted, and Americans, I think myself included, don't have a good sense of how serious certain issues are or how relatively harmless other issues are because certain things are overreported. again, in my subjective opinion of how certain events, particularly this past election, have been handled in journalism. 
And to respond to your question about Keith Olbermann and George Stephanopoulos, in my mind, it is admittedly hard to find a distinction. I know that Stephanopoulos's donation was given to the Clinton Foundation prior to her previous bid as a presidential candidate, but I do think it shows a clear affinity, even if it's in the past, for Clinton's values, which I think are also values tied to the Clinton Foundation. And I think insofar as we live in an era of personal branding, I sincerely feel that someone's personality and their private business and their forms of merchandise, the designs on their logos, these are all things that, while they are not identical to one another, do hold at their core that individual or that family or that group. And so while I don't know if I would disqualify Stephanopoulos as a journalist because of this, I do think the public, and perhaps his audience in particular, should be made aware of certain financial contributions such as that. But on the other hand, I also recognize that we live in a world where privacy is very valuable, and I don't know if it's the place of the citizen to know how individuals, journalists, or otherwise are spending their money. But again, perhaps to the extent that we hold journalists to a higher standard or perceive them to be held to a higher standard, objectivity being one of them, I wonder if it is a sacrifice that comes with being a journalist, that you are in a sense in the public eye and should expect a degree of privacy, as all citizens should be entitled to, but in some senses less so, because you are in a more visible arena of our society. And to take a quotation from the Center for Public Integrity article, quote, Several journalists employed by Thomson Reuters, which operates the Reuters news agency, have likewise given Clinton money, and one has given to Trump. That's fine, said company spokeswoman Abby Serfos, as, quote, Reuters journalists are permitted to make charitable or political contributions as long as they don't conflict with their reporting responsibilities, end quote. And to me, that's interesting because I've often found that financial transactions are more long-lasting than they would otherwise appear, that when you buy a product or, let's say, spend $500 on an article of clothing, I don't think it's as simple as an exchange of money for a good or service. And I think, at least I've noticed psychologically, that when I do make a serious investment in a product or maybe in a person, that there is a certain degree of self-assurance that follows that transaction, telling myself, okay, I just spent a lot of money, but it was worth it, right? And then in a very biased way, picking and choosing information that validates my decision to have spent that money. And so what I mean is that in the context of political donations, I can very easily envision someone learning about a candidate that they support and therefore feeling compelled to donate. And after making a serious contribution financially, continuing to see reasons in the information they encounter that in their minds supports their decision to have made that contribution. And I don't think that contribution is ever as cut and dry or black and white as a check that is written and mailed away and never thought about again. I think in the back of your mind, you're always going to know that you have in some sense supported that candidate. And I think psychologically, as again, reporters are human beings, There is a certain sense of cognitive dissonance that we all try to avoid. And I think that reporting against a candidate for whom you have made donations and to whom you've given your time could present a form of cognitive dissonance. But to transition a bit, I'd really love to know your thoughts on one of the articles we read from Harper's Magazine. This was actually the cover article of the November edition of Harper's. It's titled SWAT Team. It's a little tongue in cheek, but the thesis is that. 
the media generally, and the Washington Post opinion writers in particular, to borrow author Thomas Frank's word, exterminated Bernie Sanders' campaign. Now, Bernie Sanders was the main primary opponent to Hillary Clinton last year, and Frank observed in his study of months and months worth of opinion pieces in the Washington Post that they favored Clinton's candidacy over Sanders by a ratio of five to one, and not only favored, but discounted Sanders' candidacy, ruled out his ideas as unrealistic and idealistic, even foolhardy. And I think this is important because it reveals that the opinion pages, rather than being a true contest of ideas, reflect a certain political position. Frank characterizes that position as beltway centrism, sort of an alliance of political and business elites centered on Washington, D.C. His point is that these opinion writers and their sizable collection of columns discounting Sanders' candidacy actually did a disservice to the American people and to their profession more broadly. One point Frank made in a radio interview I heard him do on NPR's Here and Now is that this so-called punditocracy, a word I believe he coined, has become so dissociated from your average workaday newspaper journalist. And what he means is that while these opinion writers for the Washington Post continue to trumpet the sort of neoliberal economic policies that Sanders opposed, the newspaper industry at large has been hit hard by those policies. I don't want us to veer too far off course, but I think it's worth summarizing the financial state of the journalism industry. Frank points out that in 2014 alone, 3,800 full-time editorial personnel were fired from newspapers. And I've watched over the past few years as many newspapers have gone out of business, the Rocky Mountain News comes to mind, and many more have stopped producing print editions, or they've cut down on their home delivery services. The New Orleans Times-Picayune and the Cleveland Plain Dealer are among the newspapers that have reduced their home delivery service to just a few days per week. And so while I'm sure that some listeners would have objections to Frank's characterization of the Washington Post editorial staff, it brings up an important point, that being that a newspaper's opinion writers, their columnists, can have just as much of an influence, if not more of an influence, on the way people consume news than the supposedly objective reporters who work for the same paper. Now, these pundits, as they're called, they don't generally report the news. They opine on the news. They shape public opinion through their analysis of the news. And this, I think, is an underexamined area of the media world. And I'm really glad that you make that distinction because I have a lot to say on that. Even thinking about this show in particular, what I've always enjoyed and what I feel has resonated with the audience has been the subjective, thinking about the ways in which I see the world or guests see the world and asking listeners, do you agree? Where are you coming from? What are your perspectives? And to me, that's always been more captivating and engaging because at the risk of contradicting what I've said earlier in this episode, I think objectivity is necessary, but it's not necessarily engaging or enthralling in the way that subjectivity is. As an example, a lesson I've taken from this past election is that while many people indeed appreciate thinking about things and enjoy the opportunity to consider new information or new perspectives, I do think people on a fundamental level 
prefer strong feeling to heavy thinking. And I've seen a lot of people defend perspectives or choices by saying, well, I just agree with them. They just say what I feel. They put words to my inner emotions or perspectives of the world. So I think that in many ways, subjectivity is sort of the dessert in our media diet. But objectivity is necessary. It may not always taste good. It may not be engaging or pleasant. But at no point would I say that we don't need objectivity. I will admit, though, as a conversational podcast host, that I've always felt most comfortable with the subjective. And for me, the key is acknowledging that distinction, that when the subjective claims to be objective, that's where you become dangerous. And I do think, unless you note otherwise, your audience, your listeners, in the case of a politician, your electorate, might consider your subjective opinion to be objective. And that's where I think there's a great danger in politics and in journalism that you cannot presume readers will make that distinction, and in a world where we are all searching for some form of solid truth, some concrete foundation on which to build our lives and our understanding of how we live in this strange world, that if someone speaks loudly enough and with enough conviction, I think the human tendency is to see it as truth, and eventually the truth, and that's where I think the value of objectivity comes in. And I really loved a moment from the Columbia Journalism Review article that you shared with me that said Republican strategist Frank Luntz in 2003 with the Bush administration urged politicians to soften language surrounding global warming to instead call it climate change and that environmentalists should become, as according to his memo, conservationists. And so I think some of the pitfalls surrounding objectivity are not necessarily how we tell the story, but the granular details of the words we use to tell the story and the tone we use to convey that story. And again, I would come back to this fact that journalists and their audiences, at least for the moment, are human and are so heavily guided by almost subconscious factors that tell us someone's body language or their tone or their eye contact or their posture can indicate so much information that I do think objectivity, like happiness, is something to be pursued but not necessarily a destination at which we will ever arrive, because it is so elusive in that way. And there's another quotation from that article which said, fairness has come to mean a scrupulous passivity. Coming back to that idea you mentioned earlier of the journalistic fear of introducing or injecting a topic because it will appear biased inherently. And I think that's another risk to consider, one for which I don't have a clear answer or response, but I don't think the answer in a pursuit of objectivity is to silence oneself. In fact, I think that leads to more subjective polarization, which again, to go back to this previous election, I think does far more to obscure the truth, however elusive it may be, than to illuminate the truth, again, whether it is something always out of our grasp or potentially reachable. Any thoughts on that? I do want to stress that I don't think journalism is plagued by an unwillingness on the part of reporters to do hard-hitting reporting. I think reporters want scoops. They want to reveal information that's in the public interest. But at the same time, related to this punditocracy that has grown up in the Beltway region, it makes me uneasy the extent to which some journalists have gotten cozy with the politicians, the institutions on which they're reporting. I shared with you an article from Political Magazine by Jack Schaefer, written in the wake of this dump of emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta, by the organization WikiLeaks. 
And these emails implicated a number of journalists in the sense that it showed them employing excessive flattery, even offering pre-publication review to the Clinton campaign in exchange for access. Access is a hot commodity in the world of political journalism. Everybody wants that exclusive interview with Hillary Clinton, with Donald Trump. And sometimes journalists do things to acquire that access that we on the outside may consider inappropriate or obsequious. Now, Schaefer likens this process of bargaining for access to sausage being made. The way the sausage is made may be unsavory, but he argues the result is creditable journalism. If being obsequious is what it takes to collect valuable information from a political campaign, he argues that has journalistic merit. It doesn't necessarily compromise your objectivity, and I think he has a good point. But I'd also like to point out that journalists must remember, just as journalists use political campaigns to get scoops, to write front-page stories, political campaigns use journalists and manipulate journalists for their own reasons. One of these WikiLeaks emails revealed that the Clinton campaign wanted to get Maggie Haberman, formerly with Politico, now with the New York Times, to report a certain story because they thought she would portray the Clinton campaign in a favorable light. And so I think it's important for journalists to have the awareness, the introspection to realize that campaigns, other sources, are constantly trying to manipulate them to portray them in a positive light. It really is a kind of game. I mean, I'm reminded of the game theory that I learned in political science classes in college. It's a process of manipulation. And so what I would say as we begin wrapping up this episode is that I think it's important to think of journalism as a check on those in positions of power. And perhaps it would be more useful to think of good journalism not as objective, per se, but as adversarial and skeptical. Glenn Greenwald, who won the Pulitzer Prize a couple years back for his reporting on the Edward Snowden leaks, is big on this idea of adversarial journalism, of journalism that challenges those in power, that doesn't accept what they say as the truth, because he knows the pitfalls that one can encounter simply trusting people in power. That's one of the reasons we went to war in Iraq, is because the media acted as cheerleaders for the Bush administration. And I think that's fair to say. Judith Miller, New York Times reporter, accepted all of these nuggets of information that supported the war effort, and she published them without properly scrutinizing them. We've talked a lot about the 2016 presidential campaign, but in order to create a broader conclusion out of this discussion, I think we would do well to consider the proper role of the media in a democratic society. The government plays an important role, certainly, but if the media doesn't act as a check on the government, who will? I agree. And one thought that occurred to me as I was reading the Columbia Journalism Review article is that perhaps objectivity, somewhat like humility or altruism, is actually the most vivid when you don't claim association with it, when you don't point out that you are in pursuit of it. By which I mean, if someone does you a favor and then says, wasn't that kind of me or you're welcome, you can suspect that perhaps they were doing it to earn your goodwill to flatter you and not simply because they were trying to help. And so I think that objectivity as an underlying pursuit, and again, I still don't know how I feel about it as a potential destination, 
should not be constantly reiterated in the publication of journalistic work. I believe that internally, journalists should discuss the value of objectivity and, in as far as you can, should be taught how to pursue objective work and how to publish objective journalism. But I don't think that they should necessarily be telling their audiences that they are objective because I don't think that's necessarily true. And in fact, I would encourage all news sources, although I think they would lose viewership and therefore ad revenue as a result of this, to remind their base, their consumers, that they are not objective, that they are in pursuit of objectivity, but that you should not solely rely on one news source. And admittedly, that is my perspective. Other people may disagree, but I would find it rather arrogant to claim that your news source alone is the sole temple of knowledge and information, and that readers and viewers should not consider alternative sources. I think that's rather unfair, and I know it's a tough market in which you have to sell yourself, but I personally disagree with the silent implication that you are objective, that you are sharing the whole truth. And before we close this episode, what would you like our listeners to consider after listening to this discussion? One thing I'd like our listeners to think about as they re-enter the world after listening to this episode, is what do you value in journalism? I certainly don't want you to come away from this episode thinking all journalism is bogus or inherently suspect. What I do want you to think about are the ways in which all journalism is influenced by sources, the current political climate, the socio-political context in which the author of the journalism grew up, Objectivity is a good goal for which to strive. But what I'm even more interested in is seeing journalists disclose conflicts of interest. I think that's one of the most effective means of getting closer to objectivity. I mean, objectivity to me is like infinity. We can conceptualize it, but can never effectively reach it. If you're like me, you would appreciate journalists disclosing contributions they've made to political candidates they're covering, disclosing that they used to work for a company about which they're writing. It's that transparency that I think news organizations ought to emphasize in their reporting and editing processes. Ultimately, I think journalists do have to adhere to a higher standard of behavior than the layperson. Journalists do not or should not traffic in gossip and innuendo. I think journalists have a responsibility to confirm the facts as best they can. But as you mentioned, Kip, objectivity, while it may seem like a fairly straightforward value, can be pretty elusive once you start trying to define or achieve it. To the point of objectivity and subjectivity as elements in a media diet, I would urge listeners to think about the body, so to speak, that is built after consuming one type of journalism for a long enough period of time. And if, in fact, you enjoy highly subjective journalism, whether you would admit it or not, and I certainly will concede the fact that I really enjoy impassioned articles that agree with my viewpoint because there is something affirming about that. And I don't think that's objective, but I do think a lot of us, whether we are guilty of it or not, do consume that type of content. And I would urge listeners to think about the type of world that creates, because in a market where journalistic pursuits are often determined by what readers, viewers, and listeners will consume and therefore help to generate revenue for, consumers do have a lot of influence. And I think we as a society, a consumer of journalism, 
have to negotiate that and have to determine whether or not we want objective journalism, because I do think ultimately the market will speak for itself. And I hope we don't ever live in a world where the pursuit of objectivity has been forgotten and abandoned as something that is not profitable and therefore not worth our time. And I'd also love for listeners to think about that relationship between money and objectivity, money and journalism, because I think those are worthy considerations. I'd also love to know what listeners think objectivity looks like, both in a journalistic sense, but also outside of journalism. How would you define this very elusive and potentially illusory concept that we've been talking about today? And finally, as both Gabe and I are very interested in the topic, to those who are listening, what do you consider to be objective journalistic sources, or are there highly subjective sources that you personally enjoy and perhaps accept as non-objective sources? I'd really love to know what you all are listening to and consuming. And Gabe, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on and taking the time to talk about this today. It was my pleasure to talk with you again, Kip. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So for those of you listening, if you have any comments or thoughts or opinions that you would like to share, we would love to hear from you. Ours are only two voices, and we really hope you will contribute to the discussion. And if you would like to reach out to us, you can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to, as well as reviewing the show, and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.